Well, Dan and Dite and Liesl, thank you this morning for leading us musically in worship. Thank you, congregation, for lifting your voices in uh, praise and worship. We sing to God and we sing to each other and for each other, and it's an encouragement to come together and hear voices of people who share in like precious faith. And what a joy it was to serve some of you this morning in communion. Uh, what, a, what a blessing to be able to switch places a little bit and uh, serve some of the brothers and sisters. And it was such a privilege. I was thinking that as we stood in the back, guys, before we came down front. What a privilege it is to serve, serve God's people this way. Praise be to the Lord. God knows what series we're in this week because on Monday I went to my mailbox and I had a, a mail out from LifeLock. And on the front of the envelope, it said this, Identity fraudsters stole $16 billion from 12.7 million people in 2014. And I just grinned. I said, Lord, you know what series I'm in, don't you? On the other side of the envelope, it said this, You may, think it can, you may never think it can happen until it happens. You have only one identity. Protect it with the best. LifeLock. Then I opened it up and I looked through it and then I got down to the bottom in the fine print. And it says this, quote, no one can prevent all identity theft. We're talking about our identity in these days, our identity in Christ, if you are united to him as a believer. We're talking about how God sees us, not how our fallen hearts sometimes see us or how the world might define us, but how God defines us. Have you had your spiritual identity stolen? Now, if you've had your financial identity and your uh, personal identity stolen, I, I can't help you. But if you've had your spiritual identity stolen, then you're in the right place this morning. Now, as believers, I would say this, it's really more lost than stolen, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree? It's more forgotten than forcibly removed, this identity loss, this identity forgetfulness, it really starts innocent enough. Each week I want to take a different angle on how we identify or define ourselves in our culture and try to, you know, address that with that day's identity. And so the angle this morning is work. It's work. And, and so I would say this uh, losing our identity starts innocent enough. We perhaps go to college and we get a degree in a certain field or profession, or perhaps we get some job training or on-the-job training, and whatever the case is, whatever the path was that God had for you, before you know it, especially for men, but it's not just for men, but before you know it, work doesn't just provide for you, work doesn't just describe what you do, work defines you, doesn't it? And this is subtle and slippery, and it kind of comes upon us unawares, where what I do becomes what I am. This is a dangerous place. Someone asks what you do and you say, I am a teacher. I am a physical therapist. I am a pastor. I am a businessman. This is a slippery slope, beloved. Especially for men. Like a barren woman in the Old Testament, a man who is unemployed or underemployed or even retired can feel useless can become depressed. I mean, vacations are great, but a permanent vacation? This is getting expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it 
If you take away my title, my position, my business, if you take away my daily activity, my work, my job, who am I? What do I have left? Well, if you're a believer, what you have left is this, especially men, if you're feeling any of that, you are still a child of God. You are still a son of God. All of those things can pass away, and in fact they will, because none of those are eternal. But this is. Part two then this morning, answering the question, who am I? Six sermons on this. This is part two. Answer, I am a child of God. I want to give you a few introductory principles to this subject, and then we'll get to our main text. Becoming a child of God, first of all, is rooted in loving predestination. Loving predestination. We are told in the Bible that in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Ephesians 1.5 Being sons or children of God is only true of believers in this sense. There is a sense where we are all the offspring of God. God is the creator of us all. But when the Bible speaks of this subject, 99% of the time it is really speaking to the issue of Christians who are properly related to God as Father. And so being a son of God is only true of believers. The, the world at large is confused about this. Much of Christendom is confused about this. You'll hear language where all people are referred to as the children of God. And, and yes, it's true in a very small sense, but this is not the emphasis of the Bible. All people are not the children of God uh, according to the Bible and the emphasis of the Scripture writing. Galatians 3.26 says this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 Therefore, this is something that we become. This is something we become in time. Familiar words from the Gospel of John. But to those who received Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John, 1, uh, John chapter 1, 12 and 13. Or 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Beloved, beloved, now. We are children of God. And so the implication in all that is this is not something we were born as. This is not something that you just uh, somehow become uh, over time. But you do become this through faith in Christ. Ultimately born of God. And then finally, the uh, last introductory principle to this subject. Knowing God as Father, addressing God as Father, having a relationship with the creator of the universe as your father is central to the new covenant. This is right at the core of what it means to be in covenant with God and to be a member or a partaker of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Here's from 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 where Paul writes and really quoting from the Old Testament. 
God speaking, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here is a promise then of the new covenant where God talks about being in a special relationship with his own. Father, sons, and daughters. So those are just some of the preliminaries from other places in the word of God before we get to our main text this morning, which is in Romans chapter 8. So if you'll turn with me to Romans 8, and we'll see what God has for us this morning as we are reminded of our identity in His eyes. As we seek to take back what is rightfully ours, right? Whether forgotten or stolen. Romans chapter 8, and follow as I read Well, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to read each part as we go through it. So we're going to be in 12 through 17 of Romans 8. What we're going to see are six implications of being a child of God. Six realities when you are a child of God. Reality number one. A child of God is in the business of killing personal sin. Here is an implication of being born again. Here is a reality when you are a child of God. When you have this identity pronounced over you by the Father and you have entered into new covenant with Him, a child of God is in the business of killing personal sin in your life. Look at verses 12 through 14. Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, he speaks of the sinful flesh there, the sinful nature. If you are living according to that, if that's the pattern of your life, if that's the habit of your life, if those are the pursuits of your life, if you're wallowing in your sin and you love your sin, you must die. He means die eternally, die forever. If you are living as a pattern of your life according to the flesh, you must die. That's by necessity. It's the only option. It's the only outcome there. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body... Obviously, the sinful deeds of the body. If you are killing those, you will live. You'll live eternally is the idea. Verse 14. Look at the all-important connector there. Four. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In other words, this is the Spirit-led life. Verse 14. This is the Spirit-filled life, putting sin to death in your life. Those things are connected. So often we'll pull verse 14 out of context and we'll say, Wow, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And we conjure up some mystical, subjective Christianity where we're just led by the Spirit of God. What's God saying to me now? What's God wanting me to do now? What, what color shirt should I wear today? I need to be led by the Spirit of God. You know, and it just gets ridiculous. And that's a a fatal error that people make by pulling verses out of context. Connect verse 14 to verse 13. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Christian life is then, or you're like taking a jackhammer. And you're breaking up stubborn concrete. And you're breaking it into submission. It's as if the Spirit of God here is the jackhammer. I think of those huge pieces of equipment you see out on road construction. 
and you can hear them and feel them even in your car before you get there. And they're just essentially gigantic jackhammers, aren't they? And they're just... And that's it. I mean, just over and over, pound the rock, pound the rock, pound the rock, beat this thing into submission. And this is really the role of the Spirit of God in our life. This is not willpower religion. This is Spirit-empowered killing sin. And this is what sons of God and daughters of God do. This is what it means to be a child of God. To be Spirit-led, then, is to be killing sin dead. To be Spirit-led is to be killing sin dead. The Spirit wants nothing more in your life than to see your holiness grow and conform to the image of Christ. This is His primary role. He is God the, what? Holy Spirit. And where He comes and indwells and goes to work, He is all about, all about that jackhammer. Relentless. Pounding away. Pounding away at pride and selfishness and greed and lust and slander and exaggeration and, and half-truths and outright lies. He's always just pounding away at the sin that remains in believers' lives. And I'm glad it's like that giant thing out there on the road. I mean, it needs to be that big and it needs to be that powerful because there's a lot of stubborn rocks still to be broken up. Paul is saying here that when we are putting sin to death in our life, this actually proves that we are sons of God. This is what proves that we are children of God. It's not necessarily how you feel about yourself. It's whether you're going to war with sin on a daily basis. Child of God, son of God, daughter of God, don't negotiate with the sin in your life. Don't slap it on the wrist and tell it everything will be okay. Don't ignore it and hope that it goes away because, listen, it's not going away. It's not going away by ignoring it. We need to treat personal sin in our lives like we would treat a mass murderer in our society. We need to arrest him, judge him, and execute him. And that's what we need to do to personal sin. Arrest it, judge it, and execute it. Hack Agag to pieces. One of the greatest sermons Dr. MacArthur's ever preached way back in the 90s. Go listen to it. Hack Agag to pieces. Bring it under submission. By the power of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you are killing sin, you will live. Have you seen those funny, there's a lot of them, but the latest funny Geico commercial? This is really funny. It's a guy in a break room warming up his burrito or something in the microwave. And over at the corner of the room is the rock band Europe. And as the numbers go down on his little lunch, you know, eight, seven, six, they're over there playing this song. Uh, what is the song? I just went blank. Final countdown. Final countdown. And, the, and they got the whole band and the lights and the steam and they're playing this thing and everybody in the break room kind of looks over and it's like wow this is weird what are they doing here and the Geico guy says uh, if you're the band Europe you really love a final countdown that's what you do that's who you are that's what you do when you're a child of God you are all about killing sin that's what you do you love to see sin decrease and righteousness increase in your life now, we are putting sin to death. We are killing sin because, reality number two, a child of God is free. A child of God is free. 
to kill sin and to live godly. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. A child of God is free. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 chimes in and says this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Child of God has gone from law to grace. We've gone from a condemning judge to a confirming father. We've gone from being under the wrath of God to standing in the grace of God. We've gone from guilty to forgiven. We've gone from fearful to free. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. There is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have gone from, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. We have gone from, woe is me, to Abba, Father. I recognize you now as my loving, gracious, compassionate, heavenly Father. As you live your Christian life, do you ever think for a moment that God might be angry with you? Do you ever think for a moment that God might be against you in some way? I'm here to uh, remind you this morning, believer, He's not. He's not angry with you. In fact, He can't be angry with you. He can't be wrathful toward you. All of that anger has already been spent. That cup has been emptied. He was against Christ so that He will not ever be against you child of God. This is the whole meaning of the cross. This is the whole meaning of propitiation. Wrath turned to favor forever. He's not angry. He can't be angry. He won't be angry. This is a tremendous verse. You have not received a spirit of slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to fear. Slavery to condemnation. Slavery to the law. Slavery to trying to please God, to earn your way into heaven. You haven't received that spirit, believer. Leading to fear again. Fear of death. Fear of God's punishment. Fear of God's wrath. That's all over. That's all gone. That's all the past. But, but you have received, maybe, we can read this two different ways, a spirit of adoption or the spirit of adoption. You have received the spirit of adoption. You've been adopted as sons. You're in the family. You're affirmed by the Father as His own child. No longer is He the condemning judge by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So what is the Father's disposition then toward His repentant and His reconciled child? If you were in uh, the Luke Sunday School class this morning, you almost got to hear about it. Is there a better place in all of Scripture to see the Father's disposition toward us now than Luke 15? And what happens when the prodigal son comes home? You know the story. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to jump in to show us the Father's disposition toward us that has not changed from the day we repented. The prodigal son, so he got up and he came to his father. 
while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, waiting for him, looking for him, and he felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This was a shame culture. This was not something that would be expected. This was radical. This was shocking to see this grown man, this father, this estate owner run, tuck up uh, his robe, gird up his robe, and, and run toward his repentant child. Not only does he run, not only does he feel compassion, but he embraces, he hugs, he kisses. And the son gets ready to go into his long and prepared speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. How, how wonderful it is that he still addressed him as father. Father, by every right you should kick me out of the family. By every right I should have no inheritance. By every right I should never be an heir. I just want to come and work for you as your slave. That's all I'm asking. Verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, and he like interrupts the, the pre-prepared speech. You've said enough. You're here. You're home. I don't even need to hear anymore. You said I have sinned. That's enough. <laughs> That's enough. The father says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe. We're going to treat him like royalty. We're going to treat him like the firstborn. We're going to put the best robe on him. We're going to put it on him. We're going to put a ring on his hand. Symbol of authority, symbol of royalty, symbol of value. We're going to put sandals on his feet. And it's time to throw a celebration. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He was dead to us. He was dead to the family. He was gone. We may, we may have never seen him again. And now he's come to life. He was lost and now he's been found. And they began to celebrate. Beloved, this is the Father's disposition toward the child of God, always. He's always full of joy toward us. We are His beloved, we are His beloved children. How wonderful is this? Reality number three. Back to Romans 8 and verse 15. A child of God talks to God. <laughs> child of God recognizes who he is and he talks to him in prayer. Look at verse 15 once again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic for father. It's father, father. It's Abba, Abba. It's Papa, Papa. It's a term of endearment and a term of intimacy. And we, and we can cry this out to him, not about him, but to him, at him, before him. There's recognition here. There's that moment of recognition. Galatians 4, 6 echoes this. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Did you hear that critical connection? Galatians 4, 6. You know, He's the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of God. But here in Galatians 4, 6... Paul calls him the spirit of his son. God has put the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now think about that critical connection. As a believer, as a child of God, you are united to Christ. We are able then to talk to God like Jesus talked to God. 
We recognize Him as Father like Jesus recognized Him as Father. I mean, think of all the examples. The Lord's Prayer that He taught His disciples. It begins, Our Father who art in heaven. If you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark records that Jesus says, Abba, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. Six times in the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus addresses God as Father, including righteous Father and, oh, holy Father. Six times. We are united to Christ, and so it is the Spirit of His Son that is in us that is crying out, back out, just as He did on the days when He was on the earth, Abba, Father. This is an amazing thing, then. You and I may talk freely and boldly to our Heavenly Father just as Jesus did. In fact, I would go a step further and say when we pray, we are giving vent to the Spirit of the Son of God who is in us. Continuing to cry, Abba, Father. He was the Son of God. We are sons of God. Are you facing pain or pressure in your life this morning? Cry out, Abba, Father. Cry out to Him. Are you not sure where to turn? Has life brought you to a place where you're in a quagmire? You're in a very difficult place. What do I do next? Ask your Father for wisdom. Ask your Father for advice. And turn to His Word to find it. Are you under a crushing need this morning? Like Hezekiah, when he heard that he was going to die, and he had that report, and he brought that, and he laid it before God. You need to bring your pressing, crushing need and lay it, lay it before your Father and cry out. Cry out, Abba, Father. I read in the paper this week that uh, whooping cranes, there's only like 300, they think, left right now. They're doing better, but there's still only 300, but they migrate. You know, they fly south every winter, and so Texas is their pathway from Canada to, I guess, way down in South Texas. And these whooping cranes are going to fly 2,400 miles. And I suppose they whoop along the way because they're, they're cranes. They're whooping cranes. That's what they do. They migrate. Children of God cry out. Children of God recognize that the judge is your father. It's who we are. It's what we do. Beloved, you know you are close to forgetting your identity if you are not crying out, Abba, Father. You are so perilously close to forgetting who you are. This is what the Spirit does in us and enables as a pastor, you can't ever talk about God the Father without raising the issue of earthly fathers. And far too many times, the issue of earthly fathers raises in most people's minds lots of pain. Lots of heartache and lots of hurt. In fact, some people really struggle with even seeing God as Father because they can't seem to see past their earthly father. Can I simply state the obvious this morning? They are not the same. Will you get over and get past your earthly father? If you want to stay tethered to that excuse and that hurt and that fear and that bitterness and that unforgiveness, you can. We all can. We all can. And so can our kids. 
Or we can move on and you can move on. Whatever your earthly father did to you or failed to do for you, that wasn't your heavenly father. They are not the same. They are not. One is but for a moment. The other is eternal. One is flesh and bone. The other is spirit. One is flawed and broken and prone to mistakes and sin just like you are. And the other is perfect and whole and righteous and wise. And he is your heavenly father. You need to honor the first, cry out to the second, and never confuse the two. Let's move on from that excuse and cry out by the power of the Spirit of the Son of God in us, Father, Father. Reality number four is verse 16. Verse 16 reads for us, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Reality number four is this. A child of God knows he's a child of God. A daughter of God knows she's a daughter of God. Because the same Spirit that enables us to kill sin, the same Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, this same spirit witnesses to our spirit, testifies to our human spirit that we belong to God as his children. Slaves do not have legal rights. Slaves have no rights in ancient Greece and Rome. Slaves, the typical slave, lived in craven fear all the time of their master. Their masters were taskmasters. Slaves were nothing more than animals, really. A slave knew that they were not family, they were not heirs, and they knew that too. But you are not a slave, you are a son or daughter of God. Galatians 4, 7 says, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. No longer a slave, but a son. And Romans 8 is telling us, not only is that true, but you can know that it's true. You can walk as if it's true. I mean, what good is our sonship if we don't even know that it's real? If we don't even know that it exists? It's not much good, is it? But look at verse 16 again. It is the Spirit Himself, emphatically. God Himself, through His Spirit that is doing this continuously, not just one time, testifies. And He does it with our spirit because He indwells us. He's in there at the deepest place of who we are. And when all seems lost and when all seems to be falling apart all around us, way down deep inside of that, there is this peace that I am a child of God. We are together. Don't live like a pauper when you are a prince. Don't wallow in sin like a little street urchin when you are a child of the king who has been set free. Not only are we children of God, but we can know that we're children of God. Praise God. Reality number five. A child of God is actually God's heir. A child of God is actually God's heir. Look at verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ... Galatians 4, 7, again, 
chiming in says, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Have you ever noticed in the Bible when we think about the fact that we're children of God, that we got here kind of two different ways? We are children of God by adoption, which changed our legal status and standing before God. That's our justification, where we are declared righteous in His sight, and now legally I am His child and I am His heir, and that's all, that's the adoption side of this. But that wasn't enough for God. He wanted us also to be a child of God by nature. He wanted us to share the divine nature, and so there is where regeneration comes in. And we are born above, from above, we are born again as children of God. Of course, Jesus needed neither one of these to happen in his life. They were true forever from eternity. But as children of God now, we are both adopted legally his children and we share his nature by regeneration. And it's as if God is saying, I'm going to cover all of the bases so that you know that you are my irrevocable heir. You are my child twice over, if you will. You are a permanent member of this family, God is saying to us. You have a permanent seat at this table. This is a will and an inheritance that you cannot lose, and I will not revoke it, and I will not write you out of this will. You cannot be unregenerated, and you cannot be unadopted. No matter what you do, you will always be my child. (laughs) Who said that as a parent? (laughs) Well, God says it to us. No matter what you do, you will always be my child. We are doubly secure then in these realities. And there is no possibility whatsoever that we will be written out of this will. And beloved, oh beloved, it is a sizable estate. Sizable. You know, the last will and testament says it all. The last will and testament is the truth. It is the final answer. It tells us what the owner wants to do with his estate. And it tells us who is really identified by the owner and related to the owner in that way. Throughout life, oftentimes we'll hear people say, well, this person is like a son to me, or or, this person is like a daughter to me. Are they in the will? Oh, oh, so it's kind of a like, they're like a son, or they're like a daughter. You see, you usually won't find those types in a will, will you? Perhaps, but usually not. Because the last will and testament tells you the true intent of the owner and the lasting identity of the heirs. And we are heirs of God. Not only heirs of God, but we're fellow heirs with Christ or joint heirs with Christ. Different language used now. We're moving from the father to the elder son, the firstborn among many brethren, the preeminent one. This is just like the point with prayer earlier. The spirit of The Son of God comes in us, and and when we pray, we give vent to Him because we're united to Him. Now it's the same type thing. United to Christ, who is the Son of God. Christ, who is the only, listen, the only rightful heir to the Father's estate. Not us, but Him. When we are united to Him, we simply share this inheritance. It's not something we earned. It's something we share because it all belongs to Christ. United to Him, we have His standing and we have His status before the Father so that whatever belongs to Christ belongs to who? Us. Whatever belongs to Christ belongs to us. And dear friends, what belongs to Christ? Everything. 
the entire universe was made through him and for him. Every star, every planet, the earth, everything on the earth. This is why the Beatitudes say the meek will inherit the earth. Everything belongs to Christ. United to him, you're a joint heir with Christ. By adoption, then, we go from being slaves to sons to heirs. Does this not put your bank account and your retirement portfolio in some kind of perspective? I mean, if, you, if you're rich or you think you're rich, guess again. <laughs> and if you're poor and humble and ha- hardly have two quarters to rub together, this is your inheritance. You are heir to the largest estate imaginable. A joint heir with Christ. Reality number six. Yet, even a child of God suffers in this life. Even all of these other realities, we still come to verse 17b. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified also with Him. Even though you and I are going to inherit the universe and everything good in it, And even though God will not withhold from us any good thing in eternity, yet we still must and will suffer in this life. If we are to share in Jesus' inheritance, then we must share in Jesus' suffering. If we are going to be united in His resurrection and His power, then we must be united to His crucifixion and His pain. This is why I read Hebrews 12 this morning. I think this is where fatherly discipline comes in. This fatherly discipline is part of this suffering as a child of God on our journey to glorification. It's also where persecution and battling sin and fighting temptation and fighting the devil comes in. Those are all forms of suffering that only believers experience. Unbelievers don't fight temptation. They just yield to it. Unbelievers don't fight the devil. They're just his children and they live under his rule. That's all part of our suffering. Being hated by the world. Being rejected by the world. That's also part of our suffering. We don't fit in. This is not our home. We are outcasts and and exiles. And suffering is broad. It takes many forms. But it must be, and it will be, if you're a son or daughter of God, even though everything will one day be yours in your glorification. Even the status then as children does not exempt us from suffering. Actually, it guarantees it. It guarantees it. So here are six realities when you are a child of God, six implications for all children of God. Number one, children of God deal with personal sin Number two, they're free. They're free from the law. They're free from condemnation. They're free from judgment. They're free from fear of death. They're free. (laughs) If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty. Number three, they talk to God because they recognize God as Father. They cry out to Him in that way. Number four, they know that they're children of God. They can know that. Number five, not only children, but heirs, but number six, they will still suffer in this life. Has the devil stolen your identity this morning? I want to call you to rise up, child of God, and reclaim it. 
Reclaim your identity this morning from the devil. Has the world distracted you to the point of you have forgotten your identity? Then I want to call you to remember today, child of God, remember. Finally, has the flesh condemned you? Has your heart condemned you? Are you confused about your identity? Then let's have a reboot today, all right? Reclaim, remember, reboot. And take back what is rightfully yours as a son or daughter of the Almighty. Now, I want to combine this week with last week. Last week, the first designation was beloved, and now we put it together with children of God, which the Bible actually does a few times, beloved children of God. And we have, listen, of our six identities, we have the most important. We have the fundamental. We have the foundation now. Everything builds from here. We cannot forget where we've been today and last week, that we are beloved, greatly loved ones, and children of God as we move forward in our series. I need to announce today to you that I have recently started a, a new business on the side, and I'm calling it Eternal Life Lock. <laughs> I may need some cons- consulting help, Ken, on this. My, my pitch is going to be this. You only have one identity. Protect it with the best, Eternal Life Lock. And then you're going to get some stuff in the mail and you'll open it up and you're going to go down and you're going to read the fine print and the fine print's going to say only Jesus can prevent all identity theft. Amen? Amen. Dan, come on up here and uh, lead us in our closing song. And Liesl, a blessed assurance. I hope you love this song. I do. I hope you'll be singing it this week. Let it echo in our ears all week long. Let's stand together as we close our service. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine.